Hello, everyone. Um, I am Dale Peck. Um, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Evergreen Review, and I want to uh, welcome you all um, uh, to the reading that we are co-sponsoring with the great organization Singapore Unbound. Um, it's white supremacy, not sex addiction, stupid. Um, uh, if that title is not um, self-explanatory. Um, uh, as I'm sure too many of you know, um, uh, on March 16th, uh, Robert Long uh, went around Atlanta going to various establishments, mostly run and frequented by um, uh, Asian American women. He shot seven women. Um, we would like to take a moment um, to say their names to remember uh, who was lost. Uh, Dayu Feng, uh, Hyung Young Grant, Sun Chu Kim, Paul Andre Michels, Soon Chung Park, Xiao Zhe Tan, Delana Ashley Yaon, and Yang A. Yue. Um, uh, this is uh, an inciting incident, but by no means um, uh, an unknown or um, anomalous occurrence in this country since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Violence against Asian Americans is up 150% in this country. Um, we know that some of it has to do with our now gratefully departed president who persisted in referring to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus through and even after his term was over. But we also know that, you know, there are deep systemic factors um, that are a part of it. Um, uh, at Evergreen, um, with our intrepid poetry editor, Ji Liang Ko, who is also the founder or co-founder, um, I don't want to steal credit from anyone else of Singapore Unbound, um, we decided that we would have a, a little reading um, addressing the topic. Um, uh, I want to thank our readers tonight, um, Devi Laskar, Paula Mendoza, Pauline Park, Selena Su, and Jareen Tan um, for joining us tonight. Um, uh, I also want to thank uh, Evergreen staff um, who's uh, here and um, uh, uh, otherwise uh, engaged. John Oakes, our publisher. Wave John. He's the man who makes it all happen. Um, Ji Leon Ko, who's our poetry editor um, uh, and our co-sponsor through um, Singapore Unbound. Um, Joy Garnett. Uh, Jeffrey Renard Allen, Miracle Jones, Joe Perez, and Julia Torres, um, various editorial staff, without which we would not have um, the amazing magazine um, that is uh, Ever Evergreen Review. Um, for those of you who don't know about Evergreen, I'm just going to talk about it for just a, a couple of minutes. Um, uh, Evergreen was founded in 1957 by um, the late, great Barney Rossett. Um, uh, Evergreen was kind of instrumental in sort of broadening um, the United States literary scene and looking um, uh, to um, uh, other countries, other languages for inspiration. Um, it was the first place in the country to publish um, uh, great writers like Samuel Beckett, um, uh, Yukio Mishima, uh, something like a dozen Nobel Prize writers first were published um, either in English or in the United States um, in Evergreen Review. Um, uh, was incredible champion um, uh, of both free speech, um, but also avant-garde um, expression. Um, here in the modern reincarnation of the magazine, we don't pretend that we can live up to um, uh, Barney and his original editor's great legacy, but we do try to follow in their footsteps. Um, we're especially committed, um, I think in this day and age to giving uh, voice to uh, writers, um, uh, individuals that aren't necessarily um, celebrated or observed in the mainstream literary world. Um, uh, once again, I really have to thank our amazing editorial um, uh, team for bringing uh, these incredible voices to it. Um, if you haven't been to Evergreen, I do urge you to check it um, out at some point. We are exclusively online and free at evergreenreview.com. Right now, uh, we have Selena Sue up, actually. Um, are, are you reading Lucid Dream tonight, Selena? I'm reading part of it. 
Okay, great. Um, so part of what she's reading tonight will be up on there. We also have Debbie Lascar, um, who wrote LG, this word I can never say, ABC Darian. Is that how you say it? Um, uh, um, uh, a very specific response to um, uh, the Atlanta murders. Um, uh, we also have uh, Louis Nicosi, a South African writer, um, a story from the 1970s actually called The Love Festival. Um, uh, Elizabeth, uh, or sorry, Joy Garnett, our art editor, um, uh, interviews Elizabeth Duffy, um, uh, an artist, John Yao. Um, we have some poems up there. Mohamedou Old Slahi, who was a prisoner in Guantanamo Bay, Guantanamo Bay for almost 15 years, um, has given us an excerpt from uh, his forthcoming memoir. Um, Gina Apostol um, has also provided us with uh, the foreword to an anthology of um, uh, uh, Filipino writing in translation, which you can just see behind Gilianco um, uh, in the background there. And we have an excerpt from uh, one of the stories in the anthology by Roy Valdeo Aragon. We also have Tucker Landisman writing on gay sex ethics during COVID. Um, uh, you learn uh, things about gay sex that you never thought that you might learn from that particular piece. Karen Rothman um, has a fascinating piece on John Ashbery's music listening tastes um, uh, and a couple of fabulous poems from Laurie Stone um, uh, and Suzanne Gardner, who've been in the magazine um, several times. So go on, check us out um, if you can. Uh, please, you know, put your name on our mailing list so that you can stay abreast of our events um, and all that. And if you are so inclined, of course, I have to ask this, you know, there is a nice little donate button on the website. And if you'd like to help us out, um, please feel free. Um, we are at this point entirely funded by private donations um, and, and all that. And we do insist on paying every single writer and artist who contributes to the site. So if you can help us out, we would appreciate it. Um, other than that, I will say, oh, coming up, uh, do go, go back to the site soon where we are starting um, Robert Guffrey's four-part series on QAnon. Um, uh, I don't know if any of you watched the recent um, documentary Into the Storm on HBO, which was mostly focused um, on, on the identity of the person behind QAnon. Guffrey's series is more focused on why people believe um, the nonsense that is the QAnon conspiracy. And um, if you thought things were strange, it is much, much stranger uh, than you realize. We also have a really fantastic essay by Ju Young Park um, uh, on uh, President Biden's sort of, you know, continuation. Um, I know we all want to like President Biden after the president of the, of the last four years, but Ju Young Park is here to point out that uh, um, there, there are longstanding problems with America's um, relationship to the Asian world, um, and Biden is not showing any particular signs um, uh, of ameliorating or changing any of those policies. So look for those in the coming weeks um, uh, at Evergreen. Okay, I have done my part for the magazine and all that, and I'm now going to turn it over to the real master of ceremonies, um, Ji Liang Ko. He is Evergreen's poetry editor. He is a brilliant poet um, uh, in and of himself. You should check out his most recent book of poem, Connor and Seal, um, which is utterly gorgeous. And he's also the founder of Singapore Unbound, um, which is an organization devoted to um, not just Singaporean, but, but Asian um, and Asian American writing uh, um, from, from all around the world and just an all around brilliant um, writer, activist, editor, um, and teacher. Gee, um, I give it to you to take over um, for the rest of the evening. I'll be back to say goodbye at the end. Again, thank you all for coming. Thank you so much, Dale. That was a very, very generous introduction. I really I do appreciate it. And I really want to thank you as well as John and the entire Evergreen uh, team for actually co-organizing this uh, event together with uh, Singapore Unbound. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. My name is uh, Ji Leong Ko. 
I'm the poetry editor of the Evergreen Review and the founder and organizer of Singapore Unbound, a literary nonprofit based in New York City. Singapore Unbound organizes events such as this one to bring people together. We also run a press called Gordy Boy, committed to publishing Asian voices from around the world. Because of the rise of anti-Asian hate in America, we've decided to donate all revenue from the sales of our books from March to May to Min Kwan Center for Community Action, a nonprofit based in Flushing, Queens, which advocates for low-income tenants, turns out the vote, and provides social services in Korean and Chinese. Please check out our books. I've just put a link in chat for you. This morning, I was editing an essay for Singapore Unbound's blog. The essay is written by a former student of mine, Megan Louis, and it is about her family who have been in the US for six generations. In fact, her great-great-great-grandfather was one of the thousands of Chinese workers who built the Transcontinental Railroad. Despite this long history in the US, Megan writes, on March 21st, 2021, this year, she still had to go with her mother and her sister to the Asian American Pacific Islander rally against hate at Columbus Park in Manhattan's Chinatown in order to scream with others that she belongs here. Megan writes, and I quote, being an AAPI, being a person of color in this country is precarious. One day you could be playing volleyball with your friends in one spot, and the next day in that same spot, you could be signing up for war, fighting for this country to accept you. One day, your people could be nominated for the Oscars, and the next day, their bodies could be used as target practice for someone having a, quote, bad day. One day, your people are the model minority, and the next day, your people are a virus. End quote. It is a big part of this precarity to be both seen and unseen at the same time, to be hyper-visible and yet invisible. So it is with deep gratitude that we welcome five amazing writers to read this evening, to be seen and heard. I'm probably embarrassing them by calling them amazing because it is deeply ingrained in us Asians not to put ourselves forward. But here we are, taking a stand when the time calls for it. After the readings, we will have a time for community when everyone is invited to give your thoughts on the readings or on the situation in the country and the way forward. Our first reader is Jareen Tan. Jareen Tan currently teaches global Anglophone literature in the English department at Mount Holyoke College. She was born in Singapore and has a PhD in English from Brown University. Her writing has appeared or is forthcoming in Asian American Writers Workshop, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Literary Hub, Modern Fiction Studies and elsewhere. Would you put your hand together and you're allowed to unmute yourself just for a second for this. Would you put your hands together for Jareen? Hi, 
good evening, everyone. It's so nice to be here with you. My name is Jereen Tan. My pronouns are she, her. Um, thank you for having me today. I'm glad to be able to share space with my fellow speakers, Paula, Selena, um, Davy, and Pauline, and all of you. Thank you to G, Dale, John for inviting me and the organizers at Evergreen Review in Singapore and Baum for putting this event together. My heart is sore for the victims of this horrible tragedy, their families and loved ones, and for our community in this moment. I'll be reading an abridged version of an essay I wrote for Wired magazine reflecting on the Atlanta shootings. I'm thinking of Lauren Hill singing, everything is everything. Yes, our fates are intertwined, but change will not come eventually as she sings. We have to cohere. We've got to do this together. So I'll just start. So seeing as home is a relative term anyway, where would you say is home? Singapore, I replied trenchantly. Ah, but you sound completely American. The question had been posed by a fellow dog walker, a certain well-meaning but irritating type of Western Massachusetts resident. The white person's performance of wokeness is pre predominantly for themselves and it necessitates endorsement by a non-white person. Here, the Asian person is very useful. We come with built-in model minority complexes, are aligned with whiteness in key ways, and possess a cultural propensity to publicly perform politeness. So it's me this man has to address. My eyes are overscored with an epicanthal fold, also known as the mongoloid fold, and my skin has a yellow undertone. After an afternoon in the sun, I caramelized into a biscuity shade of brown, but never burn. These I knew were what prompted his peevish question, cloaked though it was in discursive eccentricity. As an Asian person in America, most of the time, racism rubs more like a rash than a gash. One learns to be grateful for the small things. In my first year as an international student at Berkeley, I was egged by people in a car who yelled fucking chink, then went around the block and did it again. One tells oneself, at least it was an egg and not a bullet. In her New York Times op-ed on the recent wave of anti-Asian hate crimes, Anne Chang drove this point home. She asks, are Asian Americans injured or injured enough to deserve our national attention? And then on March 16th, a white man shot up three massage parlors around Atlanta, including one called Young's Asian Massage and killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women. The truth is, chink is one of the less insulting things I've had yelled at me, less stinging than the gendered and solicitous Nihao or the unshakable, awful Kubrickian me love you long time. Let's be clear, in a year that saw a stratospheric spike in anti-Asian hate crimes, the majority of these were against women. Until this week, meaning the week of um, the attack, I've been struggling to give gravity to what I knew deeply were important issues concerning Asian women in particular, but I kept second guessing myself. I worried I sounded petty or dramatic, indulgent for taking up space. When a white man murdered six Asian women and two other people because he had a bad day, I knew I had gaslighted myself. A revolting feeling of both vindication that I was not crazy and horror that my worst suspicions had been confirmed. For Asian women, there is always pulse to danger of an altogether different frequency, one not registered by others who haven't had the same embodied experience. I was followed home once by a man in Berkeley 
who tittered at me in broken Mandarin, told me he had a knife, then coolly asked for my number. The presumption of the Asian woman's obedience might seem to remove her from obvious conflict, but this simultaneously assumes her subservience, dehumanizing her and rendering her impervious to violence, at least to the minds of her perpetrators. In moments like these, I am not only terrified, I am seething with rage. I want to cuss and scream, but this is not what they expect of me. And I know that to shatter their image of a nice Asian girl is to risk a price I cannot pay. Pop culture has perpetuated the view of the subservient yet sexually accommodating Asian woman, often as a metaphor for the fantasy of a Western patriarchal white colonizing force. So much homage has been paid to the stereotype of the Asian woman as a hooker with a heart of gold in musicals and films like Miss Saigon or The World of Susie Wong. Even the way Asian women have historically been spoken about from dragon ladies to tiger moms casts them as animals first, humans second. In this light, the Atlanta shootings and the targeting of Asian women feel like a tragic inevitability. It is sickening yet unsurprising that news coverage would mention first that the suspect apparently has an issue, what he considers a sex addiction and sees these locations as a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate, end quote. Even though he simultaneously denies it was motivated by race. Asian femininity is at once all too sexually foregrounded and completely erased. The pesky sex objects to be done away with are indeed Asian women, their Asianness implicit and not worthy of remark. The coldness of this report is chilling. These locations were temptations for him, which were to be eliminated, not women who were murdered. It is as if the bodies have disappeared into the space that names them for their use value, massage parlor, brothel, and so on. It is as if they deserve punishment for having stoked a white man's desire, a desire which he hates because culture teaches one to hate to love the Asian woman. Already excuses are being made for him. How can the response to having a bad day be to kill Asian women unless Asian women are not people and therefore cannot be killed, only eliminated? It's the investigator that describes it this way, not the murderer. This way of viewing Asian women is acute and explosive, but also chronic, pervasive, invisible, rhetorical, fatal. Seeing Asian women as corrupting vamps and vixens in America dates back to at least the Page Act of 1875, preceding the more well-known 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned Chinese women from entering the United States on the assumption that they were immoral prostitutes. But the plight of the yellow woman is not unique to her being in the West. To understand her position requires an intersectional understanding of a subject that is under the heel of both racism and misogyny. The global Asian community is now struggling to find a way to unify itself for solidarity and all attempts feel unwieldy. In America, the rhetoric calls for Asian Americans to band together, but this erases large groups of Asian diasporic populations. What about Asian people who are non-citizens? How, how does this movement seek to address anti-Asian hate crimes in other parts of the world? All of this is tied up too with class and citizenship, intra-Asian violence, East Asian imperialism, 
American exceptionalism, colonial violence, and anti-Blackness. It's not extricable from the fact that Harvard law professors continue to deny the existence of wartime Korean comfort women, or from the fact that if Asian women endure violence, it is also often in the context of domestic violence in America and elsewhere, or from Western imperialism that tells us yellow is dirty, or from decades of white feminism that erases and silences the validity and subject position of Asian women. The pain of this moment lies in straining to articulate a defense for the safety of one's community because conversations around anti-Asian sentiment fall through the cracks in the diet between black and white in the American racial consciousness. Asians are pit against black people when both groups are under the thumb of white supremacy. Trump's Kung flu digs are as much at fault as our bipartisan tough on China positions. The current geopolitical flux makes all these conversations even more intractable. White America, liberals and con conservatives alike, is grappling with the end of the American century and the rise of the Chinese one, while Asians flounder in the shifting hegemony between national politics, citizenship, and race, stumbling to find their place. This and more are why the movement to fight anti-Asian violence struggles to cohere. But cohere we must if we are to push back against white supremacy and misogyny and insist on the humanity of every person, black, brown, or yellow, American or non-American. After a year of being holed up in my apartment in pandemic-ravaged racism world America, hiding under my hat and behind my sunglasses and mask so no one can know who I am or what I am, I can't help but be impatient and I'm tired of being afraid. I'm looking forward to the hot, humid stickiness of the summer once again, when I can shed my outer layers and, unafraid, expose my skin to the sun. After all, it is not the sun that I fear. I'm yellow, I brown, I never burn. Thank you. Thank you so much. Please feel free to unmute yourself and make any kind of noise you wish. I'm putting the link uh, in chat to the, wi uh, to the Wired uh, article that uh, Jereen just read from. Uh, please save the ring, uh, link, all right, for uh, later uh, reading. Thank you so much, Jereen, that was wonderful. Our next reader is uh, Paula Mendoza. Paula Mendoza's work <clears throat> has appeared in the Evergreen Review, Hayden's Ferry Review, Dredginald, Benetton Review, and elsewhere. Her first book, Play for Time was selected by Vijay Sashadri for the Gordy Boy Poetry Book Prize and published in the spring of 2020. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Utah and lives and writes in Salt Lake City. Please put your hands together and welcome Paula Mendoza. Thank you. Um, I'm just gonna go ahead and start. Uh, so I recently read the novel, America is Not the Heart by Elaine Castillo for a book group organized by FONS, a Philippine American National History Society. And uh, it's about Hiro de Vera, who was a member of the Philippines uh, New People's Army and a political uh, prisoner. 
and uh, disowned by her parents before immigrating to the States to begin a new life with her aunt, uncle, and cousin. So this, uh, this poem is about how it felt uh, to read her story. In the book I am reading, the protagonist's name is Hero, short for Hieronyma. There are several scenes in which food is described, and I wonder if an MRI would show as I read them whatever neurons making up my sense of smell light up. I wonder how much of my past paragraphs resuscitate and think, how, think about how writing memory is just mangled surgery, a story sawn jagged, rough stitched with the forceps left inside. In the book I am reading, I am reminded of everything I never learned about where I come from, who I come from. I am left looking up words the writer leaves untranslated. The effort of looking humbles me. My tongue suddenly thick around a syllable I am unsure needs my illusion or stress. I think I should call my parents, should return the email my father writes, always opening with a blessing, closing with a prayer. The book I am reading talks back to Bulasan, tells him decidedly that America is not the heart or even the spleen. It is decidedly between hero and Rosalind, between magic and medicine, and spans the lifetimes of each demon possession a bruja casts out. In the book I am reading, languages mend like smashed bones, gnarled with ache. Um, this and next poem is uh, inspired by uh, Charlotte Perkins Gil uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's story, The Yellow P P Wallpaper, which, besides its um, themes of feminine reclamation, uh, I feel has big uh, pandemic lockdown energy. So uh, it's called Now More Than Ever, Now More Than Ever, Now. I was three days tracking a fox you kept telling me wasn't there and that I had only dreamt its sleek red form rippling between the poplars. When our attic flooded with locusts, I knew their thrums frequencies hid the question. I had to listen to extract from the hordes pulsing trill, a creature's signature crepitation, then precisely unwing its crack and rub to draft my answer. It's been a whole year and I no longer need you to believe. There are more animals than languages and I chase through corridors and brush the hungriest one. Um, this uh, next uh, poem is another pandemic poem about a uh, brain fog episode that felt bizarrely emotional. So um, it's called Algebra. You ever make a mistake so absolute it convinces you of reality's simulation? Like when you see something that isn't there or when looking for something, find it directly in front of you. It had been in front of you this entire time a kind of existential trick, the ace so deftly palmed your certain it vanished from our material dimension. Some weeks dissolved the deck. The other day I could not solve for X. It's not a metaphor. 
I had forgotten that what I did to one side of the equal sign needed to be done to the other and crossing between meant a reversal. If added here, subtract there. If multiplied here, divide there. I laughed until I cried, until I was just crying, trying to explain to the person I loved why forgetting what X amounted to in the end meant forgetting how any of this mattered. Critical thermal maximum. Something that keeps me up at night is how little I have done to save all of your beautiful children. I want to have never known my part in this. I want to love a human more than I want vengeance for the human hurt. Nothing comes after the fact of us. There is only now, this moment, we are drinking and splashing and blushing pink and the water simmering our bones for stock. Um, last two poems and uh, before I read those, I just wanted to thank uh, G, Dale and John and also uh, my fellow readers, Jereen, Selena, Debbie and uh, Pauline. Um, it's, uh, it's an honor to sort of um, be in community with, with all y'all and uh, yeah, so thank you. Uh, say again, you misread me. I don't lament memory's imperfect retriever, retrieval. I revere narrative's double vision. I want dominion over the look back, ahead, and what either gaze disfigures. Let my mirage suit its thirst and install a rubble dark under which anyone agonized awake might rest. And now, last poem, the title is just um, March 16th, 2021. I am too tired today of what occasions a poet to make of metaphors a salve. My syntax keeps at a vague remove some harm. I know this is not the time to be silent, but it's all I want in my head right now, where the dead have gathered loud in their pain. Thank you. Make some noise, everyone. Thank you so much, Paula, for reading those poems. It's so, so powerful. Thank you. And if you wish to find out more about, you know, Paula's work, I've actually put a link uh, in chat where you can actually find her uh, debut uh, poetry collection. Our next reader is uh, Selena Sue. Selena Sue's writing includes the poetry collection Landia, published by Belladonna, two poetry chapbooks, three books on social policy and civil society, and pieces in the New York Times Magazine, N Plus One and Harper's. Sue is a Marilyn L. Gittell Chair in Urban Studies at the City University of New York. Her poem, Lucid Dream, <clears throat> on the democracy movement in China and Hong Kong has just been published at the Evergreen Review. 
please put your hands together for Selena Sue. Thank you so much to G, Dale, Jareen, Paula, Devi, Pauline, John, and everyone here. I'm just so happy to be here with you. Um, for starters, I also want to at least acknowledge that after moving here from Brazil in middle school, I grew up a settler in indigenous Lenny Lenape lands. And I've been thinking about how New York, the city that raised me is built upon a protracted process of dispossession, stolen land, the stolen labor of enslaved African people, stolen lives. And about how my family has suffered racist xenophobic violence and my family has benefited, benefited off this history. Thinking about the class, gender, age, and other identities of the victims of anti-Asian violence this past year, I'm reminded to keep in mind these histories, the vulnerable among us, our nanas and popos and hamanis and abuelitos and jadatis and zaidis, home health aides and massage workers and school janitors and street vendors and bus drivers. What do we need to not just feel safe but to thrive. Um, so for tonight, I want to start with a poem published in The Believer last year based on the testimonies of neighbors from Manhattan's Chinatown, where I used to live. I wrote this on an assignment from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project as part of their documentary poetry series. And I especially appreciated this challenge because they wanted me to fact check my poems and run them by the neighbors who inspired it. And this specific form of collaboration shaped the language I use here. Market Street. He worked in a local factory with his mother darting between clothing racks, swinging from them, playing hide and seek with half his classmates. She made her money, a penny a garment, by using a long chopstick to turn the baby doll dress fabric belts right side out. She couldn't reach the foot pedal, not even with her tippy toes, until the third grade. The factories had no set hours, so their mothers could take a break as the school bells rang, come back with their children in tow, and work some more. Their mothers brought home the bread, so to speak. He hid from investigators who came by to make sure there were no child workers at the bottom of a giant basket of clothing in a cardboard box out on the fire escape. This was before Alexander Wang and Derek Lam arrived, before 9-11, before their mother's jobs disappeared, before we left. It was when the only act of creation others recognized lay in production, when an expert fold was not a design feature, but a mere trick of expediency. In other words, a withholding, a motherly love. For disappearance is mobility, is an act of, is an act. As teenagers, they stopped working in the sweatshops, couldn't wait to get out of the neighborhood. To the shithole of a room, he inscribed, goodbye and sorry about these walls. To leave is not to turn one's back upon one's family, but to manufacture a different light. Golden hour cast shallower shadows there. Still, the neighborhood beckoned back to the institutions that enabled their flights 
they sang polyphonic prodigals, and yet their escapes route circumnavigated home. They thought that they had cut their threads, but they had been stitched into their skin, onto the backs of their ankles, into the smalls of their backs, between their shoulder blades, embroidered in the shape of piety, tattooed in the name of grace. Um, next, I'd like to read part of a poem that was just published in the Evergreen Review, thinking about questions of bearing witness and solidarity when language helps to shape policy, but in the meantime, there are also immediate needs to meet. And Lucid Dream starts with the epigraph, to avoid being caught, Hong Kong protesters have deployed an array of euphemisms when coordinating their actions. The act of protest itself is referred to as dreaming, Yiling Lu. So one might say, for instance, I dreamed on, on Canal Street last night. Despite the supposed omnipresence of death, I could not locate it until, if like poetry, these dreams are the machinery not of memory, but remembrance, throwing into sharp relief each structural bind we had normalized as first, tacky, then see-through glass, to be willed invisible, then flowered wallpaper. If, like dreams, these protests suspend these constructions, scaffolding, steel logics to build an encampment, and by occupation, my chest sings, and other worlding, active molding, modeling, melancholia, molten iron angered, cooled, harnessed into encrypted legal briefs, water main blueprints. In my distance or in my middle age, I feared or feared less mistaking infrastructure for architecture than conflating debt with care. I sit at my desk in New York as blue jays perch on coaxial cables outside my window, tracing fenced property lines to transmit everything I see, to witness mediated by flickering screens. What can I, should we do from afar to cross our T's, Taiwan, Tiananmen, Tibet, to carve X's for Xinjiang, but for no boomerang spirals into Beijing, perhaps still to dream in more than one language, even if it is common. My vernacular did this to me. It was not anointed so. That we might open our eyes and blink, open our mouths, sing that which we feel, no fail to recognize a new public animal when this is no metaphor. I'd like to close with some lines I put to, together for tonight's event, thinking about how American capitalism, uh, American capitalism needs, requires us Asian Americans as moving targets, a model minority one moment, a perpetual foreigner the next moment to suppress class solidarities and to calcify inequalities. My father's documents misstate his birthplace, his birth country, my mother's her birth date. Our realities become apocryphal. In 1964, my father was living in a single room occupancy hotel in Chiba, about to travel to Yokohama. It took three weeks to travel across the Pacific to Los Angeles to spend 48 hours there. He visited the Hollywood Bowl. 
He then set off for Brazil by cargo ship from LA to Panama, waiting days for the water levels to rise, to Curaçao, to Caracas, to Belém, to Rio de Janeiro, to Santos, to Sao Paulo. By the time he arrived three months later, the military had seized the government in a coup. To pay respect is not to come close to knowing. In lieu of asking where each of us came from, to have a sense of where each of us is coming from, even if we might. For Lunar New Year, my father's girlfriend gives my mother, uh, sorry, gives my daughter a red envelope with a $100 bill. I am not allowed to refuse it even though she just gave a two-year-old more than a day's wages. What demarcates a mere cook from a true chef, a teacher from a professor, a secretary from an administrator, whose crafts from whose art, except pervasive devaluation of work coded as feminine, an aesthetic derision of care as unintellectual, as immigrant. This year of purgatory is crowned unprecedented, but no pigs fly outside my window. So I attempt to interrogate exactly which logics are now suspended and how many simply slip on cloaks of invisibility. She has been on the waiting list for Section 8 housing vouchers for more than a decade. A grammar of survival bodily integrity, dignity, control, the syntax of Lanyap. I am not your, I am not yours, you are not mine. I think of her subway commute, ensconced in our respective homes, grappling with or for the semblance of a pattern of grief, who among us travels to perform hours of care work each day. A sentence becomes a kind of privilege research as devotion. I long for conspicuous absence, this presence of willful abstention in our onion-skinned histories of the immediate, resistance to the seduction of despair. In my virtual real rectangles with you, each gesture a correspondence, each paragraph an attunement, a community in the whispers of our various lullabies, names like pronouns relational rather than absolute. If what belongs to you is yours, what belongs to me is mine. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Selena. Thank you so much for that reading. It was very, very powerful indeed. I'm so glad you read from different, different uh, poems as well. I have just put in the chat uh, a link to Selena's website, as well as a link to the Evergreen poem that was just recently published. Thank you, Selena, for that reading. Our fourth reader is uh, Debbie S. Laska. Debbie is the author of The Atlas of Reds and Blues, winner of the seventh annual Crooks Corner Book Prize for the best debut novel set in the South, winner of the 2020 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, and selected by the Georgia Center for the Book as a 2019 book all Georgians should read. The novel was named by the Washington Post as one of the 50 best books of 2019. A native of North Carolina, she now lives in California with her family. Her essay, Elegy Abyssidarian, <laughs> has also just appeared at the Evergreen Review. Please put your hands together for Debbie S. Laska. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, G. And thank you to John and Dale. Um, I'm really honored to be reading with Selena and Pauline and Jolene and Paula. It is such a pleasure to hear your words. Um, so a little bit about me before I read. Um, I um, used to be a reporter. Uh, the last job I held was for the Atlanta paper. Uh, I used to be a crime reporter and a government reporter. And so uh, my joke is, you know, the last four years, that's one in the same. And, um, and then uh, I'm also a poet. I identify as a poet. So this piece that I wrote is a little bit of both, um, sort of my informed poetry that is informed by journalism. Uh, here we go. I'm just going to read parts of it because I don't think I have enough time to read the whole thing. A is for Ackworth, where four were murdered and one survived. A is for Atlanta, where another four were murdered about an hour later. A is for Asian, six of eight murdered by the white suspect were women of Asian descent. A is for Ahmad Arbery, who died at the hands of, a white men, of white men in Georgia at the beginning of the pandemic last year. B is for bile, as in, I feel bile come up my throat again when I hear the replay of the Cherokee County Sheriff's Captain describing the alleged day spa killer's actions as the result of having a really bad day. B is for Black Lives Matter, an organization that all of us, Black or not, must stand in solidarity with and support in every way we can. C is for Chapel Hill. I had considered moving back to my hometown, but then CW for winners. C is for Charlottesville. C is for colonialism. C is for Colorado, where a few days after the Atlanta area shootings, someone opened fire at a Boulder grocery store, murdering 10. C is for confluence, as in we are living in a time of viral pandemic and civil unrest, in a time of economic hardship and rise in racism, in a time of rampant gun violence, in a time of rampant police violence. D is for day spa which is the term the Asian American Journalists Association recommends writers use when describing the places of employment or recreation where the murders in Ackworth and Atlanta took place March 16th, to avoid colonial stereotyping, to avoid hypersexualization. D is for despair and disappointment, as I read and watch the news and see the deficient coverage. E is for 11, as in 11 years ago, my spouse was racially targeted by his former employer in Atlanta. The state police raided my house and me at gunpoint. I complied, I was not shot, but there was a long moment where the Kevlar clad agent pointed his AR-15 at me and I wondered if I was going to be another statistic. E is for Anjali and Jetty, a writer and activist in Atlanta whose new book of essays, Southbound, is a brave meditation on identity, feminism, racism, social change, existing as a person of color who, like me, identifies as a Southerner. 
Recently, I read her book and interviewed her and was inspired by her forthright tone, how she combats the dominant culture's white gaze. E is for essential. It is essential that we as human beings learn the names of those who were gunned down. It is essential we remember them. E is for exile. As in, my family and I live in exile inside our own country. We had to leave Atlanta and we have lived in exile inside the United States since 2012. F is for Dayo Feng who had begun working at the day spa only a few months before her murder. Her friend described the 44-year-old as kind and quiet, C-A. F is for Ferguson. F is for George Floyd, whose 2020 murder captured on video sparked a civil rights movement across America and the world. As I write this essay, the trial of his policeman assailant concluded, and the jury took just 10 hours to find the assailant guilty of murder. As I write this essay, there have been 64 mass shootings in America since the start of the trial. G is for Georgia, the location of my once upon a time home. G is for Eric Garner, whom poet Ross Gay immortalized in his poem, A Small Needful Fact. This poem should be taught in schools so we don't forget. G is for Hyun Jung Grant, whom her children and friends described as a loving mother. The 51-year-old loved electronic music and dancing and worked as an elementary school teacher in South Korea before immigrating to the United States. H is for hate crime. As I write this essay several weeks after the Ackworth and Atlanta shootings, it is not yet determined whether the suspect whom police apprehended and who has reportedly confessed will be charged with the hate crime. H is for hate groups. The Southern Poverty Law Center sent a map in the mail marking where the 838 active hate groups make their homes in America a cluster of multicolored dots and symbols denoting Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazi, white nationalist, and neo-Confederate groups surround Atlanta. H is for Elcias Hernandez Ortiz, who was near the day spa on his way to send money to his family in Guatemala when the gunmen began shooting. He sustained multiple wounds and his family has told reporters they remain hopeful of the 30-year-old auto repair shop owner's eventual recovery. K is for Suncha Kim, who is described by family as a wife of 50 years, a grandmother, a woman who enjoyed music and dancing. She received the President's Volunteer Award during the Obama administration for her efforts in feeding the homeless. She was 69. M is for Trayvon Martin. M is for Paul Andre Michaels. His brother described him as a dedicated husband and friend who loved Christmas. He's a military veteran and part of a large Detroit area family. He was working as a handyman at the day spa. He was 54. He is for pandemic. P is for Sunshine Park 
described by her family as a positive, optimistic 74-year-old who wanted to live in this, to the century mark and was planning to move back to New Jersey in June when her lease expired to be closer to her family. S is for say her name. I think of Sandra Bland every day. S is for the Sikh community in Indianapolis. Several were recently shot and murdered by a white gunman at a FedEx facility. Okay, I'm gonna skip down a little. S is for Survivor Cafe. Author Elizabeth Rosner opens her book on trauma and memory with the alphabet of inadequate language. Rosner, the daughter of two Holocaust survivors, wrote a book that was part memoir and part creative nonfiction about how people absorb atrocities they witness and how we live with them. I've turned to my friend's book and borrowed the structure of her alphabet to write this essay as a guide to wade through overwhelming feelings of sadness and guilt. T is for Xiaojiao Tan, who was murdered just before her 50th birthday and whose family told news outlets of her generous spirit and kind heart. Tan was a multiple business owner and a board certified massage therapist. Okay. Y is for Delena Ashley Yawn. Family and friends describe her, the 33-year-old, as a dedicated wife and mother, a caring sister and daughter and aunt who have prioritized her family and was considered a light. Y is for Yang A. Yue, whose children describe the 63-year-old as their beloved mother who enjoyed cooking Korean food, visiting friends, and reading. And Z is for zealous. As in I feel bile come up my throat when I read that Mario Gonzalez, the husband of Delena Ashley Yawn, was handcuffed and questioned for hours by the zealous Cherokee County Police when they first arrived at the Ackworth Day Spa after the 911 call. Thank you. Thank you so much, Debbie, for reading that. Um, really, really, really moving litany according to the alphabetical order. Uh, I have actually uh, posted uh, on in chat uh, a link uh, to the work if you would like to save it and uh, read it later. All right. Thank you, Debbie, for actually writing that and allowing us to publish it at uh, Evergreen Review. We hope that many people will read it and remember. Our uh, final reader is uh, Pauline Park. Pauline Park is the chair of the New York Association for Gender Rights Advocacy, Niagara, the transgender advocacy organization that she co-founded in 1998. She's also the president of the board of directors of Queens Pride House, the LGBT community center of the borough of Queens, which she co-founded in 1997. She led a campaign for the transgender rights law enacted by the New York City Council in 2002 and in 2005 became the first openly transgendered Grand Marshal of the New York City LGBT Pride Parade. Thank you so much, Pauline, for actually being here. All right, please uh, give everyone, give uh, Pauline a round of applause to welcome her.
Thank you. Uh, I would like to thank Dale Pack of the Evergreen Review, Ji uh, Leung Po of Singapore Unbound, and everyone else who helped organize this important event. Uh, I'm honored and delighted to be joining such wonderful writers and poets as Jereen Tan, Paula Mendoza, Serena Su, and Debbie Lascar. And I will say that I join with you today in anger and sorrow and resolve. Anger at the hatred that took the lives of eight innocent victims of hate, seven of them women and six of them Asian American women in the Atlanta area on March 16th in what has been called the Atlanta Massacre. Sorrow for the loss of innocent lives, eight people taken from us for no legitimate reason. Eight human beings with hopes and dreams and challenges just like the rest of us. And resolve that we should take this horrific tragedy and turn it into a catalyst for real change in this country. In the first press conference the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office held after the killings, Captain Jay Baker infamously said of the murderer, Aaron Robert Long, that he was, quote, just having a bad day. Well, the eight people he murdered had a far worse day that turned out to be the last day of their lives. And the sheriff's captain who would try to excuse or explain away these murders by trying to cast the murderer in a more sympathetic light was just demonstrating his own white privilege and male privilege. It turns out that he even posted comments on his own Facebook page that tried to link the coronavirus to China with Trump style rhetoric. The kind of rhetoric that has incited an almost unprecedented wave of violence against Americans of Asian descent since the onset of the pandemic a year ago last month. I say almost unprecedented because those Americans who know the history of Asian immigrants in this country know that there's been a long history of violence against Asians um, and Asian Americans that is only being widely reported in the media in the wake of the Atlanta massacre. While African Americans have been routinely subjected to lynching and racial violence, since slave ships brought the first Africans in chains to the North American continent over 400 years ago, immigrants from Asia have also been subjected to racialized violence for well over a century and a half, ever since the first wave of Chinese immigration in response to the gold rush in California in 1848. In fact, the single worst lynching in American history was the lynching of 19 Chinese immigrants by a white mob in Los Angeles on the 24th of October, 1871. Why is it that so few Americans, including too few Asian Americans, know this long history of racial violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders? Why is it that so few Americans know that it was Asians who were the first targets of anti-immigration legislation in the United States. The Page Act of 1875 was the very first legislation enacted by Congress to restrict immigration from Asia and specifically from China, which is where most of the first wave of Asian immigrants came from. One of the invidious assumptions underlying the Page Act was that all or most Chinese women were prostitutes. And so one has to talk about the relationship between sex work and violence against Asians and Asian women in particular, that ties the Atlanta massacre last month 
to the whole history of anti-Asian hate and anti-Asian violence in this country. Those Americans who know might know something about the history of anti-immigration le legislation in the United States, may know that the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was the first legislation specifically restricting immigration from a specific country. Unfortunately, the Immigration Act of 1882, as it was officially known, was only repealed in 1943 because the Republic of China was an ally of the United States against Japan in World War II. And even then, the Magnuson Act of 1943 allowed only 105 Chinese to enter the United States each year. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952 abolished explicit racial barriers, but it wasn't until LBJ signed the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 into law that the national origins formula, formula was completely eliminated, opening the way for significant immigration from Asia for the first time in 83 years. Since 1965, Asians have become the fastest growing demographic in the United States. Yet, as we've seen, violence against Asian Americans has actually increased. Donald Trump certainly bears considerable responsibility for inciting violence against Asian Americans with his racist and utterly irresponsible rhetoric about the coronavirus pandemic. But Trump didn't invent anti-Asian hate or create the haters who are perpetrating hate crimes against us. And it is important to recognize that hatred and racialized violence against Asians in the United States has been a current throughout the history of Asian America. What makes the Atlanta massacre different is not the violence, but rather the media attention to it, which is nearly unprecedented in US history. Here I would cite two incidents that few Asian Americans and still fewer non-Asian Americans are aware of the Rock Springs Massacre of 1885 and the Hell's Canyon Massacre of 1887. In 1885, white miners in Wyoming's Sweetwater County, jealous of Chinese miners, robbed, shot, and stabbed Chinese and burned many of them alive in their houses, killing at least 28. No one was ever arrested or held accountable for the violence. In May 1887, 34 Chinese gold miners were ambushed and murdered in Oregon's Hell's Canyon in what was also known as the Snake River Massacre, stealing somewhere between $4,000 and $50,000 worth of gold from the murdered Chinese. The site of the massacre was renamed Chinese Massacre Cove in 2005 over the objections of Wallola County commissioners. When I was in high school, I had a class on American history from a teacher who had a high reputation as one of the best teachers in my school. Virtually none of what I've mentioned here was mentioned in our textbook. And my teacher uttered not a single word about anti-Asian discrimination or violence in the United States. I seem to vaguely recall a passing reference in our textbook to Chinese immigration in the 19th century and a passing reference to the internment read imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II. But other than that, I can't recall anything in that textbook uh, related to Asian Americans. In 1982, five years after the high school uh, American history class that taught me next to nothing about Asian American history, 
Chinese-American Vincent Chin was brutally murdered by two white racists in the Detroit suburb of Highland Park in retaliation for Japanese competition with the auto industry in the United States. One of the murderers being a Chrysler plant supervisor and the other his stepson, a laid off auto worker. Neither Ronald Evans nor Michael Nitz spent a single day in jail for the murder. They paid a $3,000 fine and $780 in court costs. But was Vincent Chin's life really worth only $3,780? The gross injustice of the acquittals helped fuel the growth of the Asian American movement and helped politicize at least some Asian Americans who otherwise might have been comfortable with attempting to assimilate as a model minority. But the model minority myth hasn't saved us from discrimination, abuse, harassment, and violence, as last month's events in Georgia have proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. Instead, the model minority myth has only served the interests of the white establishment to pit APIs against other communities of color, when the only way forward is to forge bonds of solidarity with other communities of color. And just as we need to reject the model minority myth, we need to question the notion that more police will protect us. In fact, more policing is not the answer, especially not in a city uh, in which the NYPD have routinely engaged in police brutality against people of color, including APIs and LGBT queer people of color. The NYPD's nearly $6 billion annual budget is larger than that of the national military budgets of many foreign countries. Nor will hate crimes legislation save us. In fact, New York has a state hate crimes law that includes race and ethnicity, but that statute has done nothing uh, to prevent this latest wave of hate crimes against us. Instead, we need to bring a progressive feminist intersectional analysis to bear on the current crisis. And as a progressive trans feminist of Korean birth, I would argue that we have to understand that the six Asian immigrant women who were murdered in Atlanta lived and died at the intersection of multiple oppressions of race, gender, sexuality, class, nationality, and immigration status. While their murderer made clear his racial animus in his online rants against China and Asians, we also have to understand that women who work in massage parlors do so on the margins of the sex industry. And this is yet another compelling argument to decriminalize sex work of all kinds. So I would urge members of the New York State Senate and Assembly to support Assemblymember Ron Kim's bill that is supported by the coalition organized by Red Canary Song to decriminalize sex work under New York state law. Let me conclude by acknowledging that the way forward will be a difficult one. And there's no easy answer to the miasma of hatred and violence we now find ourselves in. I would argue that we must set for ourselves the goal, not only of educating law enforcement and the criminal justice system about anti-Asian hate, but of transforming that system, which all too often delivers only criminal injustice to APIs and other people of color, as well as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered people and members of other marginalized groups uh, in New York City, the state and this country.
Our goal must be nothing less than to transform society so that racialized, sexualized, and gendered violence against any group becomes inconceivable. I live in Jackson Heights, which a demographer recently determined was the most demographically diverse spot on planet Earth. In the borough of Queens, the most uh, diverse county in the country. As we celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, let's commit to the radical pursuit of justice for all so that racialized and gendered violence becomes inconceivable in our society. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pauline. Thank you so much. You know, so much uh, history, <laughs> and we must know it. I mean, I am just, you know, astonished and ashamed that I do not know some of the, you know, historical massacres that you actually mentioned. So thank you for educating us and also for rallying us, you know, um, for what must be done for the future. Um, we'll now open the time uh, for about 10 minutes or so maybe because you know we're running a little over uh, for anyone who may wish to express you know your thoughts and feelings about the readings that you have heard or about the situation in the U.S. and the way forward uh, this is not really a time for question and answer as much as it is a time for community uh, so please feel free to say what is on your hearts and minds uh, do however speak from the I perspective and honor uh, everyone uh, at this meeting. And of course, you know, our fabulous uh, readers may choose to respond or not. Yeah. Um, if you would like to say something, you know, please feel free to unmute yourself and speak. This was a really beautiful event. Um, I feel, yeah, just very uh, nourished and um, I don't know, strengthened um, in, uh, in, our, in our collective uh, grief and rage. And, um, and for some of y'all, uh, I'm, I'm hearing and reading your work for the first time and I'm really excited to, uh, to just go on a mad Googling spree and read everybody <laughs> after this. So, um, but yeah, the, um, I, I know I, I thanked, uh, I thanked y'all. So I'm just, I'm just gonna thank everyone again. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Thank it's you, been a, yes, it's been an amazing event. I loved everyone else's readings, uh, poetry and prose. It was amazing to, to hear you all. Uh, this is actually the first, I've, G and I have been friends for years, but this is the first time I've actually connected with anyone else and it's fantastic connecting with you all and hearing your, uh, eloquent thoughts on our current situation. Yeah, I also want to just hop in and thank everyone, um, the fellow speakers for such powerful and really inspiring work and words. I'm also going to continue reading and learning more. Um, I feel like this was so fortifying, um, this event. So thank you to the organizers for setting it up. But I also feel like I've gotten an education <laughs> um, historically and, and otherwise. So yeah, thank you everyone for attending um, and for being here. It, it feels really good in this time of isolation to have you know a virtual community and to have 
people and be together. Um, I just want to say thank you for all of your powerful, beautiful messages. And uh, these are really hard times, you know, and uh, I think the major thing, one major thing for us to focus on is just this systemic white supremacy. And I just love seeing different colors of everyone coming together, you know, um, different people have their own hurts and probably you know, that experience is, is so different for everyone. But I think, um, I can't help but think you know, the way we can fight this powerful white supremacy is by all of us coming together and reaching out across all different races and cultures. Since I'm hugely into history, as she knows, I'm gonna strike a, another history note here about two events today. Uh, on this day. Um, on this day in 1898, uh, the US destroyed Spain's Pacific fleet in Manila Bay in the first battle of the Spanish-American War, which made the US an imperial power and gave it far-flung colonies in Asia as well as the Caribbean. Um, I think when we think about US engagement, when we think about anti-Asian hate crimes, we have to think beyond the context of our shores to U.S. engagement in Asia. We have to think about its long engagement with China, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, um, how it's you know, the, the, the phenomenon of gookism uh, that relates to the Korean War and U.S. involvement with it, uh, U.S. participation in the carving up of China with the unequal treaties, and of course, uh, World War II, Ron Takaki's uh, classic book on Asian American history took its title, Strangers from a Different Shore, from a letter that FDR wrote to one of his uh, top military advisors who asked him, well, if we're going to intern, meaning in prison, uh, Japanese Americans for the duration of the war, should we do the same with German and Italian Americans since we're at war with Germany and Italy? And FDR wrote back saying, no, uh, the Japanese, meaning Japanese Americans, are different. They are strangers from a different shore. And um, while FDR uh, may be admired for many things, and I certainly do admire him for you know, creating social security and uh, the New Deal, uh, that particular uh, decision I think was really despicable and frankly, requires us to qualify his uh, status as a great president. One other uh, tiny little historical note, you can tell I'm a huge history queen, right? Um, <laughs> uh, on this day in 1738, Kamehameha was born, the first uh, king who unified the Hawaiian Islands. Now, I'm, I'm not a monarchist at all. I'm quite an anti-monarchist actually, but that's significant too when you think about Queen Liliuokalani, who was overthrown by white planters, including Sanford Dole of Dole Pineapple, um, which resulted in the ethnic cleansing of the Hawaiian Islands and a process of colonization, frankly, that continues to this day. So I think when we think about 
U.S. engagement with the Asia Pacific region, um, it goes well beyond the um, obvious discrimination, harassment, abuse, and violence that Asian Americans face as you know the eternal foreigner uh, here uh, in this country. Thank you so much, Pauline, for those reminders. And that's what I loved about, you know, your presentation and everybody else's presentations tonight too, you know, that there is no looking away from the complexities within, but also no looking away at the complexities, complexities you know, outside, isn't it, of the country. That in fact, you know, all, all have to be taken into account. I mean, I remember too, you know, again, what Julian says about how hard it is for any kind of solidarity to cohere because there are all these conflicting, you know, points of view and actions and agendas, and yet, you know, cohere we must, <laughs> right? Because otherwise things will not change. Uh, and if, you know, this uh, meeting has actually today allowed us to um, hear one another, find out more about each other's work, uh, understand each other's politics better and find, you know, uh, points of commonalities. Uh, I think we would have um, achieved a great deal tonight and taken a small little step uh, towards the kind of uh, solidarity I think we are shooting for. So I just want to, you know, perhaps this is a, a good time to just, you know, thank Pauline and thank all the readers to Jureen, Paula, Debbie and Selena. Uh, for actually gracing tonight and giving us your words, more than that, giving us your hearts and your minds. Uh, we really, really do appreciate uh, you so much. Uh, you speak uh, words of wisdom to us. You speak words of inspiration to us that I think will linger with us uh, beyond this one night. Um, and I will uh, hand over the time uh, back to uh, Dale. Uh, thank you, G. Um, uh, one more time, I want to thank you, thank all of our readers, Paula, Pauline, Jereen, Selena, and Debbie. Unmute yourself and let's give them a big round of applause um, for their amazing work tonight. Um, yeah, uh, that was uh, an amazing event. Uh, the one thing I want to, you know, uh, just just say a, a special thank you for us. You know, so often, you know, we have these kinds of events after tragedies like what happened in Atlanta last month. Um, uh, and and you know, the poems, the essays, the stories are are not directly engaged with what happened, but are just sort of examples of the writer's work or perhaps maybe thematic related. And I wanna thank all five of you for applying your energy, your intellect, your anger um, and your talent to what actually happened last month. Um, reminds us that the, I think the best art, you know, looks directly at the world. It doesn't look sideways. Um, uh, it confronts the harsh truths um, uh, as well as the, the beauties that, that art can provide. And uh, yeah, this was a really rousing evening. Um, uh, so much more than I expected and all that. Once again, I want to thank G for putting this together and thank our estimable publisher, John Oakes, um, uh, who makes everything uh, possible over at evergreenreview.com. Please do check us out um, uh, when you get a chance, sign up for our mailing list so that we can keep you uh, abreast. G and I are going to be back um, next month, at the end of next month, for our Gay Pride reading. Um, so join us then and be safe for the summer. <laughs>